Hello, and welcome to The F Word. The F Word, of course, stands for front end, the wonderful world of web development, web standards, browsers, browser politics, and everything in between. I'm Vadim Makiev, coming to you from St. Petersburg, Russia. And I'm Bruce Lawson, coming to you from my home office in sunny Birmingham in the sunny United Kingdom. How are you this time, Vadim? Better, better. Uh... I think this COVID thing is is going away. I mean, psychologically, it, it feels a bit easier here in Russia, at least. How about you in UK? Well, my my son goes back to college on Monday, so that's going to be a bit of a worry. But uh, let's see what happens. So, if I'm not here next time, it was great knowing you, Vadas. Likewise. <laughs> <laughs> So the, the, the big story of the moment is the sad news about the Mozilla layoffs. Uh, Mitchell Baker, the CEO of Mozilla, recently announced they were laying off 250 people, which is about 25% of the workforce. And that includes all the MDN writers, except for uh, our old friend, Chris Mills, who is the manager and presumably the only one on the team now, and many of the DevTools teams, but not apparently all, as I incorrectly tweeted. And also the server and the Rust teams, which is pretty discouraging because although you know, I have nothing to do with server or, servo or Rust, those were the main components of the new architecture that was going into Firefox to uh, make it faster and more secure. So that leaves me worrying about uh, the future of Firefox itself. And of course, MDN, I don't think there's a day goes by that I don't look at MDN. And the dev tools in Firefox uh, have recently been great, in, in my opinion, um, better than the Chrome Dev tools, particularly for editing things like Flexbox, CSS Grid, uh, CSS Shapes, and of course, because those Dev tools have been so great, uh, a lot of developers have been using Firefox as part of their day-to-day development process, which means naturally that um, they're testing in Firefox and we have better web compatibility. So I feel pretty miserable about this news, actually, not just because some of my friends and and your friends have have been caught up in it, Vadim, but it just makes me worry about the health of the ecosystem. When I first heard the news, I thought Mozilla is going this opera way by just producing browser for consumers. And uh, for that matter, they could just uh, switch to Chromium. And then, uh, you know, there, there are there are many good browsers that are not following the same uh, Chrome, Google Chrome paths with the same engine because they have different views and different policies and they, they serve uh, users a different kind of browser. And uh, this thing is is also possible if company is uh, committed to, I don't know, the values that are that Mozilla is committed to privacy and security and things like that. So it's possible for Mozilla to to serve users and uh, to provide users a good browser, secure and private. But 
it wouldn't be Mozilla anymore. It would be just a, another browser browser company. And we we value Mozilla not because of its browser, but well, partially because of its browser, but because their their role in in standards world in uh, mm-hmm. keeping the web uh, free and safe and uh, providing browser that that's just yet another browser engine. And we have some diversity in standards and implementation world. So that was my main concern. But then uh, then they announced that it's not that terrible. Yeah, they're laying off a lot of good people. And um, I see a lot of people finding their their job, their new jobs in, in uh, Microsoft, in, in Google mm-hmm. companies that are they still that still have some ideas how to how to develop their browsers and uh, some some exciting new plans. So they're, they're not they'll they'll be fine, I guess, the most of them. But still, they're they're going to be um, committed to dev tools, to MDN, to uh, other parts related to developers. I guess not the hundred percent as they used to, but maybe at, at they'll they'll keep like twenty or ten percent of their their effort. Well, that would be better than nothing. That what Opera mm-hmm. did for for example, and uh, it it will still be possible for them in the future to scale it back to where it was. That's my hope. Yeah, I I mean, I take some encouragement from what you're saying. Uh, And you're right, you know, we we need Mozilla to continue being Mozilla. One of the times when I was, one of the many times that I was interviewing for Firefox, um, and and it always went wrong. (laughs) They they were just about to hire me every time, and then they had uh, budget cuts or or layoffs. But anyway, yeah. I was very impressed by something one of the people who interviewed me said. He said, uh, Mozilla's product is a free and open internet. Firefox is just one manifestation of that. Firefox isn't the product. And that that struck me at the time. I suppose it would be possible, yeah, as you say, particularly with Mozilla's mindshare and install base, and if they moved to Chromium uh, but continued with their mission for privacy and security that they could do it and remain you know the voice of conscience on the web so that would be a good side but the the, the loss of the last you know the last big non webkit blink rendering engine would be sad i don't think we're getting there but you know it's it, it's when developers don't test in an engine and compatibility slides you know you and me have both know what happened with with opera there and it would be, you know, a huge money saver for, for Firefox to take Chromium and develop on top of it. There's there's no doubt about that. Same as there was for Opera. So so we'll have to see. But um, it, it, I know a lot of people speculated they were doing it because the search deal with Google was going to expire this year and they weren't sure whether it had been renewed. But, um, but they renewed it. Yeah, yeah. But Brian Cardell made an interesting point to me. Uh, he said, you know, basically... If you're funding a browser on search revenue, you're basically funding it on advertising revenue because advertisers pay Google and Google pay Firefox in a type of massive, massive uh, commercial and economic uncertainty in COVID, apparently organizations have just really tightened their advertising belts because they don't know you know what the hell's going to happen with the pandemic and that has had the knock-on effect that um, search revenues go down and uh, somebody from Firefox tweeted to me you know that that that's what's happened it's not really about the Google deal so an unexpected victim of the pandemic there 
But, you know, that sounds like a plausible reason. Plus the fact they pissed up millions of millions of dollars against the wall with uh, Firefox OS. Everybody has their Opera Unite moment. <laughs> and, and before anybody writes in to tell me that Firefox OS is forked and branded as Kaya OS and is the second biggest OS in India, yes, I know. Technically, Firefox OS is a great product, but Firefox as an organization just didn't know what to do with it. And the people um, in India who forked it did know what to do with it. So, you know, that's that's that. I will I will not be swayed from that view. Uh, speaking of the announcement itself, I was kind of glad to, to read it. It wasn't as terrible as it used to be uh, in, in previous layoffs and for, for other companies. I can see that Mozilla desperately needs to find a way to 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 make money on on mm-hmm. something on on their products on their vision, and I'm pretty sure there are people in the world uh, willing to pay uh, Mozilla for for their uh, secure and uh, high quality and independent services, but they still haven't figured out the way to do this. And if there could. Uh, stream their resources uh, into figuring this out and trying new things, that would be a good thing. I mean, if I would be the person they laid off, I wouldn't say like this, and I wouldn't say this as as calm as I'm saying this. But still, if you look at from from outside, it looks like something that could actually help them. I would really love to see that. Well, I mean, it will help Mozilla because Mozilla's got 25% less of a <laughs> staff bill to pay. So yeah. it, it's not going to go bankrupt next month because it's got a huge staff bill. So where there's life, there's hope. But uh, I don't know if you've read that article by PPK, The Cult of Free. Yeah. It's very interesting because he's absolutely right. You know, we, we've trained not only consumers, but we as web developers to believe that everything comes for free. So we can get you know great services like the the G Suite etc. for free, and therefore it's hard for commercial organisations. But, but it's slowly changing to charge. It is slowly changing, yes, because people realise that free doesn't necessarily mean free. You're you're basically bartering it for your personal data or something else, or the quality, or yeah, you're looking at ads constantly i i see a lot of people around me using free apps and they they have blind spot the upper part of their screen and bottom part of the screen is is just a blinking banner Mm -hmm. and i i can't live like that so i would rather pay for this app like even even monthly if it's if it's something that i use every day but i see a lot of people struggling i see a lot of people are totally fine with it. But I think in Russia, for example, where we used to use every app and um, listen to music for free for decades. Uh, and these days, like almost every person I know, they pay for some music subscription uh, for YouTube, for example, for different Google and Apple services. And it's it becomes, it became already a thing that people okay with and uh, maybe maybe this thing could work with browsers and some other services that we used to take for granted and then we will we, we can decide if it's something that we really need and pay for it mm-hmm. for better quality or for privacy or things like, like that I, I would certainly pay you know five dollars a month or whatever like as a subscription to firefox it's my main browser for personal use um, obviously i test in all browsers as as so should you listeners 
But um, you know, I, I don't uh, I don't surf around and visit my bank on uh, a rotating browser rotor because that would just be too dull. Oh well, you cheered me up there, Vadim. So uh, what's next? Another good company, Filament Group, uh, released something interesting. They did something that I've been looking for for a while to use myself and recommend. They built a model, model dialogue, a thing that opens when you click something, usually a button. And it's a very simple interface that's everywhere. On almost every side, there is a model dialogue. But on almost every side, it's inaccessible and it's Mm -hmm. poorly implemented. They offered a bit unusual way to do this. They uh, decided to to wrap it into a web component. So basically, they have custom tag, uh, custom element FG model with some API uh, that you could... Uh, just put on your page and then put some content inside and use some extra JavaScript and CSS to make it work. I'm not sure what's the, what's going on behind this thing. You know what? I don't care. I don't want to know. Mm-hmm. It feels like they did it right because focus inside of this thing is locked. It's the most important thing for accessibility regarding these model dialogues because if you're able to navigate outside of model dialogue, it's not model anymore. Even if it's visually hidden and the content behind it's blurred and things like that, content behind this thing is accessible, which makes it just a pop-up if you're logging in or registering or, I don't know, putting something in your basket. It should be clearly model, not only for sighted users, not only for mouse user, but, but for everybody. And they did everything right. They they use inert attribute and uh, some polyfill for it. I think it's still behind the flag. Anyway, this inert attribute is basically a way to disable something. Imagine a disabled attribute that you could apply not only to form elements, but to parts of an interface. And by applying this attribute, you, you're making it inert. So you're saying this thing is not active. It's rendered, it's there, but it's not active. So you cannot interact with it from keyboard, from mouse. So it's like pointer events and disabled put together into, mm-hmm. into a single attribute. I would prefer to have it as a CSS property, to be honest, because uh, in some cases you need to adapt interface, not just switch uh, attributes. Imagine uh, one interface on mobile and a completely different one at desktop, and you would would want to have something different disabled here and there. But still, it's it's a good solution. They use it. And I have an, another question regarding this model dialogue. In the um, uh, filamental group case, in, in, in the case of their model dialogue, they lock the focus inside of this model dialogue. And But it's still possible to tap through this model dialogue and go into a browser's interface. And I have another example of the accessible model dialogue. It's this RA practice spec mm-hmm. uh, where, where I usually look for good accessible examples. In their case, it's locked inside of this uh, model dialogue, so you, you cannot go to browser interface out of it. So it's just locked inside of the browser context. And I wonder which one, which way to do this is right. What do you think, Bruce? My gut feeling is that you should never prevent people from actually going to the browser interface. You mean like the back button and the menu? Yeah, yeah, and uh, URL bar. Yeah, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't stop people going there. I mean, it might be a modal dialogue that's asking them, you know, enter your credit card number or something or enter a password. 
And you might want to go to the URL bar to verify that you are actually on the URL you think you are. I think there is a way to exit browser area and go back to the software you're using, browser or any any other agent. I'm not very good at screen readers, but I know at uh, VoiceOver there is a way to to just go back from from the from the viewport, go mm-hmm. back from the from the actual page to to browser interface. And in this case, if you know this shortcut, you can just go back to the browser. But if you're just tabbing through and expecting at the end of a page to to go back to the browser, that breaks this workflow. So I'm not sure which one is correct. But in case of filament group model uh, dialogue, they did it right, in my opinion, and Mm -hmm. yours too. But in, in this area practice uh, spec, we'll we'll give uh, the link uh, to to both of them. They just completely locked the the focus. So I'm not sure. Be a bit careful with the aria practices spec because um, while I was doing the consultancy I've just finished, I was looking at some of the like you. I was looking at the examples in there, and I, I thought you know, there was a website navigation, and they'd marked it up as with an aria role of menu, and that didn't ring true to me because a role of menus to go on, you know, like if you've made G docs and you've got the file for save as and import that's an application menu your basic nav on a website you know home about contact shouldn't be marked up like that so i investigated a bit more and um my my accessibility guru mr adrian rosselli has written extensively about this uh and there's a lot of pull requests on the aria practices spec which isn't a spec it's a note rather than a candidate recommendation or anything because basically the workflow that's proposed there is something that very very high-end screen reader users might find normal but it wouldn't be normal for the vast majority of screen reader users and there's a few things in that spec that are really great and there's a few things in there which you know smell a bit funny which is mm-hmm. a shame because mm-hmm. uh I, I i recently a couple of months ago i wrote a massive article on our accessibility checklist and i was recommending you know take the examples out of that spec because that's what the w3c say and now i feel a bit less inclined to recommend people that spec it's not it's it's the reason why you there's no good way to automatically test accessibility it's much more complicated than that it's different from person to person even not just from from screen reader to screen reader because for some person uh, it's totally totally fine to have an interface like that for for the other it's something completely unknown it's a moving tar- target in a way there's no way to say like it's it's the perfect interface and it would work for everyone yeah that's that's why i encourage big companies to to invest in in some real user testing instead of just following the books it's why i always advise people that if you're thinking of hiring an accessibility consultant or bit of software that guarantees in inverted commas treble a compliance not to hire them because you ain't going to get treble a compliance it's uh seeking perfection you should strive for it but you're never going to get there. present company accepted of course vadim because you are as we know perfect but, uh, <laughs> but i mean yeah yay to the filament group they do great work but isn't it time that chrome just fixed its own dialogue elements to be accessible and we have it added to the spec i mean you're right that uh, a modal dialogue is on almost every web page you ever see. It obviously should have its own dedicated element so the browser 
can take care of uh, making sure everything else is inert, trapping focus, returning oh, yeah. focus to where you were before. These are all things that the browser is good at doing and should do. They do a very good job at uh, this focus visible thing. Uh, they they have very complicated uh, heuristics uh, mm-hmm. on how to draw this outline or not, and uh, they should they should have a lot of things behind uh, the dialogue. But it's it's just not ready, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, it's in the browsers, but Scott O'Hara. Passiello group did some tests on it and um, it doesn't manage focus properly in Chrome. So even though there is an HTML5 element and even though it's implemented in the biggest browser in the world, we still need the filament group to write a web component, which then needs a web component polyfill for IE11 and the inert polyfill. So sort it out, Chrome. Yes, I know I normally have a gripe at Apple during uh, episodes of the F word, but I'm turning my attention to you, Chrome. So Larry and Sergey, if you're listening, sort it out. You had one more bit of um, standards in use. Oh, yeah. In the, in the new uh, Chrome 85 and in the latest Kush app, there is a new format support. The new format that will probably... Uh, become the most popular format, even better and full of features than WebP. So there is a new AVIF format. How would you read it, Bruce? Uh, AVIF? I don't know. AVIF? AVIF? I don't know. Avif? Oh, my God. Okay. Let's sort it out now, otherwise the GIF GIF thing will <laughs> rain forever. Some, I, someone have to, yeah. Yeah, it, it's AVIF. But this is an image format, isn't it? You're, you're sounding like French a bit. AVIF. There's nothing wrong with French. Uh, what, I didn't what have you got against? What have you got against the French? Nothing. Nothing. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's a new. Uh, I would I would call it container because mm-hmm. inside of it of, of this thing there is a, uh, there is a video codec. So basically. There is a container that contains just a single frame or number of frames if you want to have a uh, animated picture, which is just a single frame of a video that's compressed uh, with those video codecs. And it's amazing thing because uh, it's even better than uh, than uh, JPEG, even better than the WebP mm-hmm. in terms of compression. And it's and it's interesting thing that uh, when it degrades quality, it makes image not just blocky and ugly it makes it blurry so if you have low quality image it's just blurry it's not degrades it just a bit softens okay that's that's a really nice feature so it softens rather than gets horrible blocky artifacts yeah, yeah. all over it and uh, the thing behind this uh this algorithm uh, in this uh, behind this codec uh, is that uh when you're using a jpeg for example it breaks your image down into squares and inside of every square it optimizes it. and in jpeg for example uh, and in webp as well i believe uh, all squares are the same 32 by 32 or 16 by 16 i don't remember the exact number in this format uh, during coding uh, it analyzes your image and if it's just a blurry background it makes this square bigger 
if it's if it's text or if it's a straight edge or something like this, it makes those uh, squares smaller. So it adaptively uh, changes the size of those squares and it makes uh, encoding so much efficient and nice looking uh, compared to WebP and JPEG. So it's the new new generation of a format, I would say. Oh, wow. Does it take like half an hour to encode an image or something like that? Yeah, it, it takes longer to encode, I believe, than, than WebP or the, than JPEG, but it's uh, it's all right uh, in decoding, which is the most important part. So I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend anyone encoding those images manually, exporting them one by one. You, you should probably automate it somehow, or put it into a continuous delivery pipeline that will do this for you. But if you want to do this, uh, or just you, you, if you just want to try it, uh, there is a beautiful Scoosh app by Chrome DevRel team, and uh, it now supports AVIF. So you can just go there put your JPEG or any other image uh, and export it as AVIF. 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 All right. AVIF. So you can you can you can export it as JPEG. You can export with uh, as a JPEG with uh, alpha transparency. You can export as PNG and lossless. And there are there are so many options. And in, in almost every case, you'll have smaller image. So it will be. It's already supported in Chromium and all Chromium-based browsers. And it's already supported in Firefox, but behind the flag. And you can just use it as you use WebP. You can add extra source element in your picture stack. It will just work as uh, with image AVIF uh, MIME type. So please build this into your automation pipeline and you'll have a much uh, smaller uh, image and graphics uh, footprint on uh, for your web pages. And thus more performance. I've heard of this picture stack, um, this picture element. It sounds like a good idea. Maybe we'll um, just give an example in the show notes. So, you you know, because for those of you who don't know, you can use the picture element. So you can say, if my browser supports a VIF, give it a VIF. If it supports WebP, give it WebP. If it doesn't fall back to JPEG. I've realized now why you're so anti-calling it a vif, because you think it sounds French, because the the previous latest, greatest container format was Matroshka, which is a Russian thing. <laughs> and so you're patriotically hating on the French for superseding the Matroshka format. Am I right? Uh, yeah, I guess that's the case. Speaking of great picture element and the inventor of it. Oh, what a guy. Uh, what a guy. Why there's no way to save an image in a format that you prefer? We know we all know that performance is, is good and uh, y- y- everyone loves saving money and time on loading pages. And all those new shiny formats are great and wonderful. So you can just, if your browser supports WebP, for example, it will switch to WebP source in this picture stack and it will use it. And once you have it uh, image loaded in your browser, you, you probably want to save it. And if you save it into WebP on your desktop, you, you have a problem because on Mac, you, there's no way to open WebP image. On Windows, there's no way to open WebP image as far as I know without extra software. And um, you can open it into br- in a browser, but who would open their images in a browser? I know, I mean, from desktop. It's a big problem because I'm pretty sure that in every picture stack, there is a JPEG, at least in IMG as mm-hmm. a fallback. Why, why wouldn't browsers expose it? You know, uh, there is a, in every browser, there's a, there's a context menu saying, save this image. And it saves the current source, not the, the one that users pre- actually prefer. So why wouldn't, 
you, Bruce, invent another attribute for IMG or some other source option so that it would allow users to save images in the formats that they prefer? Sounds to me like a job for an extension. Just uh, add something to the context menu and it just goes through, walks through the DOM and grabs the fullback JPEG from the yeah, yeah. from the IMG and then allows you to save it using the download attribute. So the you know, gives you a link with a attribute of download. I mean, I'm not going to write it because I'm stupid, but you could write it and, and make millions. Yeah, sounds like a plan. Or we can ask browsers to implement it. You know, a if and in the save image dialog, there will be a way to select the format you, you prefer. Like on uh, on YouTube, you can you can select the quality or speed of mm-hmm. your video. It would be great to ha- to be able to select the actual uh, image format you're you're saving. Or even if you store the actual source of your image on your server, you wouldn't include it in as a fallback because it would be a bad thing to do because its source image is not optimized. What if I want to save this image? What if it's uh, some image stock okay with people saving those images? They usually don't have a choice, but still some are trying to forbid me from, from saving images like Instagram or other platforms. What if they want to provide source image, not just highly optimized and resized for the exact window size images, but if they want to provide the actual source 12 megapixel super TIFF image uh, with some color spaces built into it. There there should be a way for them to do this uh, apart from providing extra link under this picture. I think it's something that's worth um, investigating. I'd be willing to bet that if browsers hadn't been invented and were coming on uh were being invented now that they wouldn't allow you to save images because oh yeah <laughs> uh, you know I, it's one of those things that everybody expects now but um you're not supposed you're not really not supposed to be saving images off the web are you and uh, i mean I, I never would because they're copyrighted Which brings me to my next story about um, a lawsuit that's going on between Axel Springer, which is a media company that owns, uh, I believe, the Bild newspaper in Germany, against IO, who are the people who make the Adblock Plus extension. And full disclosure, both Vadim and I used to work with Shwetank Dixit, who is um, a VP at IO. And I spoke at the Adblocker Dev Summit last year. But this lawsuit is is particularly troublesome because it has far-reaching ramifications for the web as a whole. In short, IO are claiming that Adblock Plus violates their copyright because it interferes with a computer program. And they're saying that HTML constitutes a computer program. Now, whether, I mean, I know there's Twitter arguments about whether HTML, CSS is programming and, you know, is is it deserving of attention and payment for the same people who write C++, but this isn't that conversation. But in German law, and I'll I'll read out uh, a translation I've got, uh, a computer program is defined as, quote, a sequence of commands which, when recorded on a machine-readable medium, are capable of causing a machine with information processing capabilities to display, 
execute or achieve a specific function or task or a result. And Springer had uh, got an expert testimony who says that HTML5 is a programming language, whereas HTML4 wasn't. And the reason that HTML5 is allegedly a programming language is, is because there are control statements or commands which cause the computer with the browser to maintain certain priorities when processing programs. Block or default only at the very end, defer or parallel async. This means that the requirements for a computer programmer programs such as those mentioned in the response to claim are met. So what they're doing is they're trying to stop Adblock Plus doing display non on adverts or not fetching certain uh, requests to ad networks, you know, using their, their filter list by claiming that any browser extension that interferes with the way that Springer wants the website to look are basically hacking a computer program. And they're just they're saying, well, HTML is now a computer programmer because of the uh, defer and async attributes on the script tag. The problem with this, of course, is that it doesn't just interfere with ads, like you were saying with the new Chromium uh, preference that says, you know, even if the developer has said outline none on focus, force it to have a focus ring, that would be illegal in Germany. Because if the developer has decided not to allow a focus ring, the browser or a browser extension should not override that. And if they do, it is hacking the computer program, the HTML. And it has all sorts of ramifications. You know, a virus, antivirus software that stops you downloading uh, bad stuff. Yeah, things like um, overriding sites who've said user scalable equals none. No, that's been an Opera and Firefox for ages. I don't know about mobile Chrome. So, uh, you, you know uh, what what Safari does? It uh, protects users from from third party scripts and um, services that are trying to spy on Safari users. So they're doing the same thing. They're they're blocking mm-hmm. some resources. They're not allowing them to use to store some data to to uh, footprint u- their users. So they're they're also modifying programs so it's it's not just against uh, uh, ad blocking industry it's not about um, the author of uh, grease monkey scripts it's against the whole nature of the browser well yes that that that's why i'm bringing it up it's i mean i'm a, you know, like everybody listening to this i use uh, an ad blocker you know we were at opera when opera introduced ad blocking i it's not i have a moral problem with the ad blocking industry but yes it gets to the very heart of who controls the web that you consume you know your browser in w3c language is a user agent it is an agent for you it is doing your command and if you tell it you know i don't want this light gray font on a white background override the css and how about reader mode (laughs) well well exactly exactly and and, and although of course this sounds like massive bullshit and complete nonsense we're technologists and the people who are going to decide this will presumably be a jury and a judge in the german court system and one of my old friends is a judge and I love him to bits and he's very intelligent, but he doesn't have the technical knowledge 
to actually make a ruling on this. So it went to court on August the 18th, and it was adjourned, I think, until the new year. But uh, I'll keep my eye on it and and report back, folks, because it, it could be that this small case in, in Germany could have many, many unintended consequences that, that could uh, be bad for us all. And quick plug, if you're interested, next Thursday, I'm speaking at an online conference that usually takes place in Birmingham, my home city, but it's online free. Uh, it's called Fusion, and I'm doing a talk called Whose Web Is It Anyway?, which will be about this and lots of other stuff where companies uh, want to decide what we can see, uh, the method we should consume it, and and you know our continuing fight for the web to be as we want it. Extra big font sizes, Braille or, or vocal yeah, it, it'll probably be quite boring because I'm boring. But if you're doing nothing else next Thursday, tune in. We'll stick it in the show notes. And a bit more. You mentioned this Adblocker Dev Summit. Uh, it's going to mm-hmm. happen again this year. So if you're interested in this topic, it's it's going to be online on October 21st. Please join. I I see a number of an, a number of talks related to what we discussed with Bruce and uh, related to the to the future of the web in general and the ad blocking industry in particular. So please please join. I think it's going to be interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm going to be there. I was I accepted the invitation last year because it was uh it was Shwetank and i hadn't seen him for ages um <laughs> and i was working for a client who had an interest in the space and i wasn't really expecting to get much out of it myself other than you know meet up with a friend and uh have have a belgian beer in amsterdam but actually there were really interesting talks about a lot of um the wider aspects of the web so yeah come along so, folks, that was um, that was the F word. Was that the sixth edition? I think it was. I guess. I guess. Yeah, we should invite another another guest next time because yeah, one one episode with just two of us is is, is enough. Yes, enough for anybody. Well, we'll, we'll see if we can find somebody um, credulous enough to come on uh, to come and join us on the next edition. But with that, gentle, humble listeners, we bid you. Farewell. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, Vadim, do you like, care to say goodbye even to the French people? Be nice now. Au revoir. Yeah, do, do svidaniya. Spasiba. Au revoir. A bientôt. Bye bye. Cheers. <laughs>